At North Point Community Church, we are passionate about helping our community move toward a life fully devoted to Jesus. And we hope this message helps you do that. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, we're glad you're here. And if you're watching online, we're glad that you're here too, whether you're in DeWitt, Langsburg, Parts Unknown, other side of the world, St. John's, whatever it is, thanks for joining us. Um, we're gonna dive into 2 John in just a little bit, but let me tell you first about Tanya Martin. Tanya Martin was her name. To a 13-year-old boy, I thought that she was the most beautiful junior high girl ever. We met at church camp and started a camp romance, if you remember those kinds of things. By the end of the week, we were eating our meals together, we had gone to the campfire together, we had even held hands. Sweaty junior high hands, right? Um, and, and, and we had, we, we determined that we were gonna write each other, we had pledged our love to each other for eternity, or at least until the next year of camp, right? Um, back in those glorious days of summer when I was 13, the mailman, that's what they called them then, mailmen, right? Um, actually delivered mail to our house to a mailbox that was right beside the front door. There was no sound like the sound of the mailbox lid opening. It was like a starter's pistol at a track meet because as soon as that mailbox door opened, all of us would descend to see who could be the first one to get the mail. Because the, the joy of it was if you found that letter from Tanya Martin or whoever, it was like the best. And if you were able to intercept the letters that went to your siblings and could use those as an object of teasing, that was even all the better, right? Um, I remember reading those letters from Tanya, examining them for any hint of whether we were going to spend the rest of our lives together. I scoured each page looking at her penmanship, penmanship and whether it was forced or whether it was heartfelt, judging the emotion of every word in that letter. They were signed, loved Tanya. And I remember thinking, uh, does that mean that she really loves me? Or is that like you love a brother? Or is that just the way that she signs all her letters? I, I, I didn't know. Um, I think we made it about three weeks before the letters started to come less frequently. And by the second week of school, there were no more letters at all. That was it. Um, but searching those letters, whether they were short ones or long ones, whether it was one page or three, that summer, I remember scouring that each page to look for every nuance of meaning that might be there. Sometimes the shorter the letter, the better it was. Did a one-pager mean that she still loved me and just didn't have time to write a longer letter? Or was it that she was just trying to let me down easy? I, I didn't know. But to, but to go through that one-page letter, it was like every word counted. Um, this sticky note series is all about the shortest letters in the New Testament. Um, we've studied uh, Philemon, 3 John, today, 2 John. Um, that those short letters, and today what we're going to do, we're going to dive deep into a very short amount of words to see what God would have for us in, in there. Um, uh, let, me, let me just start by giving you kind of a roadmap for the book. If you've got your Bibles, take them out, turn to 2 John. It's towards the end of the Bible, just right before Revelation that's there. But here's, here's the roadmap for 2 John. This will kind of guide you where we're going to go. Uh, the first four verses are all about 
the foundation of the book. The, the fifth and sixth verses are about a solution, and verses seven and eight are verse seven about the problem. I know that's backwards, but that's kind of the way that John wrote this. There's a warning that comes in verse eight, 10, and eight, nine, 10, 11, and then the closing in, in uh, verses 12 and 13. That's gonna be kind of the, the guide. There are blanks there because when we get there, you can fill in those blanks if you've got the North Point app. If you're there in the message, uh, in the message notes, you'll see what those are. You can add those. I know having the solution before the problem is kind of weird, um, but sometimes when we get the solution, when we figure out how we're supposed to act before we encounter the problem, it really helps solidify it in our lives, and I think that that's true with John's letter here. The first four verses create the basis for this letter from John, the, the foundation, and the foundation in a word is the word truth, truth. Uh, you, can, you can fill that in. John says this as he begins the letter, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Truth is mentioned four times in the first four verses. It's the basis of the rest of the letter. It's, it's what it's built on. Let me, let me take a step back though and, and just kind of introduce those, those first view, verses. The format of this letter is much like the letter that we read last week, 3 John. Um, it starts with who it's from, who it's to, um, and, and just kind of lays it out even in the same language as 3 John. Um, I was doing some study this week and, and, and just thought, why is it that they're in the order that they are? First, first John, 2 John, then 3 John. Um, some, some people, some scholars believe that they were uh, written in that chronology. Other scholars believe that it's from the longest to the shortest. We don't really know, but we're in, we're in 2 John. Um, who's it from? It's from the elder. The, that term, the elder, um, means somebody who's older and who is respected. Um, it's also a term that's used in scripture to describe an office of spiritual leadership in the church. John is that elder. He, he had a role as the last living disciple uh, that oversaw some churches. In that sense, he was the elder, and he was elder. He was old at this point in time in his life. It's probably uh, somewhere in the early 90s AD. Who's the, who is the letter written to? It's, it says that it's written to the lady chosen by God. Some scholars say, wait, is this to, to a, an actual woman and her children or, or, um, or something different? Some scholars think that it was to an actual woman. I think there, there are probably some problems in that. The most common understanding is that it was written to a church and that John used metaphorical language to say, hey, the lady is the church like the bride of Christ and her children are the people who make up the church that's there. John says, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth, not only I, but also all who love the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Truth is that same word that we talked about last week in 3 John. It's a word that means that which is truly true. Um, in any manner, in any manner, in any circumstances, it never changes. Love and truth could mean, as you, as you look at that text, it could mean uh, this letter's written to those people that I truly love, that I really deeply love. 
or it could mean, and I think that this is probably the better understanding of it, um, I love these people who are walking in the truth that never changes, in the truth of God's word. It's, uh, and John says, it's not just me who loves you, it's everybody else who is living in the truth as well. There's a kinship that happens among followers of Jesus. Why do we love you? Because Jesus lives in us, because he unites us in the truth of God's word. It brings this lasting unity. Um, that word truth, that which is, is truly true, I, I, I wanna just take some time, and, and like Tani's letter, I wanna dive into that word. In, in several areas, we're gonna dive deep this morning. There is, make no mistake about that, there is objective, rational truth, absolute truth that never changes in the world. We live in a culture that says truth is relative, that it changes, that something may be good for you and that's great. If it's not good for me, that's great too. Both of those things can live together and, and that's not a big deal at all. What's true for you is true for you. I'm here to say from God's word, from God's perspective, there is absolute truth, objective truth that never changes. Um, if, uh, um, if you, if you disagree with that, if you disagree with that and you would carry that out to its logical extension, you would say, no, there is not ever absolute truth, truth that, that doesn't change. And in saying that, you would be making a statement of objective truth, right? You follow that? This is not philosophy 101, but um, if you say, no, it can't be that way, you're making a statement that, that is absolutely true. What you're really saying is my perception of truth is relative. My perception is different than yours. That's fine. That's good. But that doesn't mean that our perception is accurate because truth is true. Um, if something is true, it's true because it's verifiable. It's quantifiable. It doesn't change. Christianity and atheism can't both be true. Because one says there's a God who created all of the, the universe, who created us, who loves us. And atheism says we can't know that if there's a God, or actually it says there is no God. They can't both be true. Christianity and Islam can't both be true because Islam says that Jesus was a prophet and a good teacher, but not the son of God. And Jesus said, the father and I are one. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. They can't both be true. Perception is what we observe and how we fit that observation of the world around us into our knowledge and understanding. Our perception is how we process the things that we see and think and experience. But our perception is not reality. Reality is what actually happens. If you're a police officer and taking an accident report, you come onto a scene and there are six different witnesses there. You interview all six witnesses and they say, oh, this is what happened, this is what happened. I'll tell you what's gonna happen. There, there are going to be six different perceptions of what happened. Each of them believe that what they saw is accurate in terms of what they're communicating. But they're gonna disagree with, with each other, sometimes on major components. One's gonna say, oh, the light was red, and somebody else is gonna say the light was yellow and ready to turn red. Someone's gonna say, oh, they were, they were going really fast, and say, no, they were going within the speed limit. Reality, truth, is what actually happened, but there are six different perceptions of what happened. 
There is absolute truth. There is one way that it happened. Why does, that, why does this whole concept of absolute truth matter to us who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus? Because the truth of our moral condition, the truth of who God is, the truth about eternity doesn't change based on our perception. It is what it is. We may want everybody to go to heaven. We may not believe that there's life after death. We may not think it matters what we believe as long as we're consistent in our belief system, but that doesn't make it true. We may think a rapist or a serial killer can never be forgiven by God. We may think that God would never send a good moral person to hell. We may think that we can never recover from that horrible thing that happened to us when we were young, but that doesn't mean that it's true. If we're at all interested in being intellectually honest, we have to pursue truth. We have to study evidence. We have to think things through, and we have to be willing to have our conclusions challenged. That leads to a critical question, I think. What makes me think Christianity is true, absolutely true? That it's the only way to have the right relationship with God. The only way to be prepared when I die. The answer to that is the resurrection of Jesus. The historical evidence of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The evidence that exists over the last 2,000, 2,100 years of changed lives because of Jesus. The incredible impact followers of Jesus have had on the world in medicine, in arts, in science. All of those things point, the, the, the world that we live in, the, the, the intricacy, the, um, the complicated nature of the world that we live in, all point to a creator God who made a way for us to have a relationship with him through his son. Um, scripture is either true or it isn't. Jesus' death either is a substitute for our sins or it isn't. Holiness matters or it doesn't. Jesus either said your word is true or he didn't. God will judge us based on whether or not we gave our lives to Jesus or he won't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you say that may be true for you, Rick, but that's not true for me. If it's true, it's true regardless of what we think. At the foundation of John's letter is this, is this concept of truth. He goes on writing and says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. John says, you know what, on that, on that foundation of truth, you're going to experience grace, mercy, and peace. Um, again, looking at the nuances of each of those words, so important. Grace, grace is the gift that we're given from God that we don't deserve. Grace is that extra bonus stuff that we receive. A beautiful day, the wonder of a body that works and that doesn't get sore when you do too much exercise. The joy that comes in having someone love you. Those are all gifts of grace from God the Father. We don't deserve any of that. We don't deserve that Jesus would come to earth and die in our place. But those are gifts of grace 
Mercy is when somebody withholds judgment when they're able to execute judgment based on the behavior of somebody else. So if you're guilty of a sin, if you're guilty of breaking the law, and, and the, the parent, the teacher, the police officer, the judge says, you know what, yes, you're guilty, but I'm not going to enforce that at this point in time. That's mercy. That's judgment withheld. Peace is, is that shalom rest that we have from striving. It's not just the absence of conflict. It's this where you just release everything. John says, grace, mercy, and peace um, be with you from God the Father, from Jesus Christ. It's going to be with us in truth and love. Um, grace, mercy, and peace are going to come from God. They're not going to come from any things, from anything that's around us. They are a reality that can live in our lives, this spirit of grace and mercy and peace. John says, some of you are experiencing that. And man, it gives me great joy to, to see it. It's uh, what I talked about last week. There's this sense that when you see people that you've invested in, that really get it, that are following Jesus, that have given their lives to him completely, man, there's a tremendous amount of joy that comes in that. There, there's an issue that, that John is going to address a little bit late, later in the letter, but he gives the solution to the problem before he introduces the problem. What's the solution? The solution is, the, is love. It's love that's demonstrated in obedience. Listen to verse five and six. And now, dear lady, now, dear church, I'm, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. This is love, that we walk in obedience to his, to the Father's commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Look at those verses on screen. Look at them in your Bible. Um, because it, it creates this sense of connectedness that we're going to dive into. John was, John was one of the disciples who wrote a biography of Jesus' life. When we talk about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John had written an account of Jesus' life that's different than that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He filled in the blanks, particularly in that last week of Jesus' life. In that account of Jesus' life, John says, that Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. The world will know that you're my followers by the way that you love each other. John says, God's command is that we walk in love. Love, don't miss this, love is more than just the way that we act towards people that we like. We tend to think, oh, I love those people, but I like them too. Love the, the marker of a disciple of Jesus is loving people when we're persecuted. Loving people when our rights are violated. Loving people that we don't like or don't get along with. Loving people enough that we extend grace and mercy and peace. How, how do you live out that kind of love? John says, by obeying what God has commanded. I, I want to pause and take a step back from the text just for a second. Um, our understanding of, of scripture has been shaped by the Protestant Reformation. It's hard for us to escape that. So I'm going to just go history for a second. In the Middle Ages, the church was a train wreck. 
It was tangled by political power, by wealth, by nationalism, by a, a whole lot of things. And in the early 1500s, Martin Luther said, here are 95 things that are wrong with the church. And he nailed them to the door at a, at a town in Germany named Wittenberg. Um, and that started the Protestant Reformation. Luther said, here's where the church has gone off the tracks. He called the church to repentance and said, we've got to go back to scripture. We've got to discover what scripture says about how the church should, should act. Uh, we've got to go to scripture to talk about, to understand how we live as followers of Jesus. That needed to happen. 600 years later, we live in the shadow of Luther's bold call back to scripture. But one of the other things that's there in Luther's shadow was Luther's adamance that faith is all that matters. He lived in a context where there was a works-based approach to knowing Jesus, to having a right kind of relationship with God. That was part of the problem that existed in the church. Um, the, the church created all these rules that you had to follow in order to have the right kind of relationship with God. And Luther said, no, it's not about the rules. It's not about obedience. It's not about commands. Faith is the only thing that matters. As a result, it's very easy for us today in the shadow of Luther to say only faith matters. Obedience is a work, and works don't matter. It's all about faith and grace. That's the shadow of Luther, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Don't miss me. I'm not, I'm not going the path of a works-based salvation, but listen to what Scripture says. Obedience does matter. Obedience is a big deal. John says, love looks like obedience. What are we to obey? God's commands. If we do, we walk in love. That seems like circular reasoning, doesn't it? Look at, look at that verse and see the connection between love and obedience and love. We're, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to walk in love. What does love look like? It looks like obedience. What are we supposed to obey? The command to love. That would be circular, except that our thinking is flawed. We think of love as a feeling, and love's not. Love is a choice that we make. We choose to love or not love. We, we choose who we love, and we choose who we don't love. We choose when and how to express that love, and when and how not to. John says, this is what you're commanded to do. Love one another all the time. When it's inconvenient, when it takes sacrifice, it's then that you'll know that you're my disciples. That's the solution. Love that's lived out in obedience. What's the problem? The problem is that there are deceivers that are coming that are going to bring false teachers. Look at verse 7. I say this because many deceivers who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Last week we talked about in, in uh, 3 John that there were uh, preachers and teachers that would go out to churches because they didn't have the New Testament in the way that we have it today. They didn't have all the letters together for people to study and to learn how to have the right kind of relationship with God. So there were teachers that would go out to the churches. Last week in, in 3 John, John says, man, um, the, those good teachers, uh, uh, Gaius, you've done such a great job because you've welcomed them into your home. You've supported them. You've stood up for them. Here, he, John says, 
There are these teachers that are coming and they're teaching false things. One of the things that they were teaching was that Jesus was not human, that he was a spirit who existed here on earth. I, I don't have enough time to go into why they thought that, but that was their thinking. Recognize, recognition, don't miss this, recognition that Jesus came in the flesh in a physical body is a really big deal, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The Gnostics, who were, who were a part of this false teaching, they didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. They didn't believe that his body had died. They didn't believe that he had experienced a physical resurrection. If Jesus wasn't fully human, like us, his death couldn't be a substitute for us. If Jesus wasn't tempted, if he didn't experience pain and fatigue, if he couldn't die, he couldn't be our savior. We hear the word antichrist when you look up there and see he's the deceiver and the antichrist. We hear antichrist and we tend to think Armageddon, right? This is the big A antichrist that's going to come and oppose Jesus end of times kind of thing. Um, that's not really what John was talking about. What that word means is anybody who is opposed to Christ. Christ is the Greek word for that, we, that if it's just translated, it would be savior. So anyone that teaches something opposed to the saving nature of Jesus would be antichrist. John says, you know what? Um, there's, there's these deceivers coming and let me give you some warnings about them. There are dangerous consequences that come when you follow false teachers, false teaching. Um, listen, to, listen to what he says in verses eight through 11. Watch out that you do not lose what we've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't take them into your house. Don't welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Let me just break down those verses and just dive into some stuff in the minutes that I have left. Verse eight, John says, watch out that you don't lose what we've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Um, in order to understand verse eight, because that's a verse that says, that makes you go, what? What's that, What's that about? Um, if you look back in verse one of second John, John says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. There's this concept that's there in scripture that's very clear that God chooses us to respond to him that he reaches out and, and he uh, chooses us, not just as a church, but individually, that God taps us on the shoulder. Um, the, uh, John Calvin, who was about 100 years after Luther, maybe not quite that much, he but he was a generation after Martin Luther, he's affected our understanding of Ephesians 1 that, that describes this whole idea of God choosing us in a very clear way, and this eighth verse of 2 John as well. Calvin understood Ephesians 1 to say that God determined before any of us were born who he would save and who wouldn't be saved. If you were following Calvin's thinking, you'd read verse 8 that says, watch out that you don't lose what you've worked for, and you, said, and you would say, oh, that can't have anything to do with salvation. That can't have anything to do with our relationship with Jesus. Um, 
in the, in the sermon notes, I've got a long, detailed set of stuff about what Calvin taught. Um, I don't have time to go there, but listen to the podcast on Tuesday because we're probably going to go there and it'll be a long one, all right, uh, for whatever that's worth. Um, the contrasting view of Calvinism, of those who, who uh, followed what Calvin taught, was uh, people who followed the, the teaching of Jacob Arminian, uh, Arminius. Um, uh, Arminianism, a really short explanation, is that Jesus came to die for everyone and that everybody has free will and that they can respond to the salvation that's given through Jesus. Uh, it, that's a choice that we make, our personal response to him. Let me be clear. At North Point, we're not a Calvinist church and we're not an Arminian church. We're a church that studies the scripture. All right, so, um, so we've got people here who would, who would say, yeah, what Calvin wrote, that makes tons of sense. We have people here that would say, yeah, what Jacob Arminius wrote, that makes tons of sense. And we can all be together as the body of Christ because this issue, this matter, what matters is that we go to scripture to try and discern and understand how it fits together. Our call is to go back to scripture what verse 8 does tell us, I think, is that when we're misled by false teaching, there's a tremendous price that we pay. In some way, our reward is less, that we'll miss something if we, if we lose track, if we lose track of our relationship with Jesus. John says, don't be deceived by Antichrist. Don't lose the relationship that you've worked to develop in Jesus, that depth that you have because of the strength of that relationship. Verse nine, he says, anybody who runs ahead and doesn't continue in the teaching of Christ, anybody who runs ahead doesn't have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What, what's it mean to run ahead and not continue in the teachings of Christ? I think it's this, and it ties into this whole concept of false teaching. Running ahead involves connecting dots that aren't really connected. It's, it's drawing conclusions that the scripture doesn't um, draw. Um, it's to teach a concept with the weight and the authority of scripture that's not found in scripture. Let me say that again. It's to teach a concept with the weight and authority of scripture that's not found in scripture. Um, Last week, a great example, last week in the beginning of 3 John, uh, when John is given his greeting and he says, man, I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing well spiritually, I want you to be well physically as well, to connect the dots to say that means that everyone who's a follower of Jesus should be healthy all the time, that's running on ahead. It's connecting dots that aren't there. Um, if you're a parent, at some point in time, you've had your child run on ahead of you, Right? If you're a teacher, you've had your, taken your kids out on a walk and they run on ahead. They run ahead at their peril, right? If your kids run out into traffic ahead of you, they're in grave danger. Um, John says, anybody who runs ahead and doesn't continue with the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Man, they're in a dangerous, dangerous place. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching... Don't take them into your house or welcome them. Anybody who welcomes them shares in their, in their wicked work. If you were here last week, you're probably saying, wait a second. I thought last week John congratulated, he applauded Gaius for welcoming these people into his house, these, these guys who were teaching. And here he says, don't do that. 
What's the difference? The difference is false teaching or good teaching. Um, it, because we don't live in that culture, it's a, uh, how, do, how do we make that connection? I think, I think it's this. Taking them into their house and welcoming them at this time in history um, was to show support and protection. Um, I think the best connection in our culture is to give financially. Um, it's to wear their swag. It's to follow their social media, post, social media posts of people who are teaching a false gospel, who are, who are given false teaching. Um, don't miss this. Tolerance is not the supreme Christian virtue. In our American culture, we have raised tolerance. It doesn't matter what anybody believes. Everything's good. We just need to tolerate what everybody thinks. Tolerance has become the supreme Christian virtue. And what John says is, no, there's truth. Truth is what matters. That doesn't mean that you have to fight with everybody all around you all the time, but you need to stand for truth. You need to not... Um, to not lessen the impact of truth in your life because truth is always true. John says about these false teachers, don't house them, don't feed them, don't show them hospitality. In our context, I think it's don't support them. Don't send your money to people who are teaching false doctrine. And, and with that, John turns the page and heads into the, the very end of the letter of this short letter. The closing is the hope for a reunion. He, he says in verse 12, I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, the, the children of other churches who's chosen by God, send their greetings. Uh, as I said last week about the end of 3 John, there's power in, see, in seeing people face to face. There's something Powerful about being together in the presence of other followers of Jesus. There's something powerful about face-to-face -face conversations. It's more, uh, there, there is more strength to that than an email or a text. John says, man, I can't wait to see you face-to-face. -face. It's gonna be good. He says, you know what? You're not alone in this. The children of your sister your fellow believers in other locations from other churches send their greetings as well. Early in the message, I said that truth was the foundation, that it was the basis of this letter. We have to know the truth. Knowing the truth helps us recognize false teachers and false teaching. Knowing the truth gives us an opportunity to live out obedience and when we know the truth, the truth will show itself in the way that we love others. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this short letter from John. God, I, I, I thank you for all of the meat that's there for us, all the stuff that's there for us to think about. God, I, I ask that you'd help us as we just reflect on, on the message today that you, would really, um, that you would really help us, challenge us, um, work in us to discern when there's false teaching, when we hear false teaching. God, I, I ask that you would prompt us by your presence, by your Holy Spirit in us to obey your commands and to live out lives of love. That's our prayer, Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.